CD5 Can I ask another question? said William. Nothing will stop you, will it? Have you found Lord Vetinari's dog? Again, total blankness. But this time William had the impression that behind it several dozen wheels had begun to spin. Dog? said Vimes. Waffles, I believe he's called, said William. Vimes sat watching him impassively. A terrier, I think, said William. Vimes failed to move a muscle. Why was there a crossbow bolt sticking in the floor, said William. That doesn't make sense to me, unless there was someone else in the room. And it had gone in a long way. That's not a rebound. Someone was firing at something on the floor. Dog-sized, perhaps? Not a feature twitched on the commander's face. And then there's the peppermint, William went on. There's a puzzle. I mean, why peppermint? And then I thought, maybe someone didn't want to be traced by their smell. Perhaps they'd heard about your werewolf too. A few jars of peppermint oil thrown down would confuse things a bit. There it was, a faint flicker as Vimes glanced momentarily at some paperwork in front of him. Lotto, thought William. At this point, Bingo had not been introduced to Ankh-Morpork. At last, like some oracle that speaks once a year, Vimes said, I don't trust you, Mr. DeWord, and I've just realised why. It's not just that you're going to cause trouble. Dealing with trouble is my job. It's what I'm paid for. That's why they give me an armour allowance. But who are you responsible to? I have to answer for what I do, although right now I'm damned if I know who to. But you? It seems to me you can do what the hell you like. I suppose I'm answerable to the truth, sir. Oh, really? How exactly? Sorry? If you tell lies, does the truth come and smack you in the face? I'm impressed. Ordinary, everyday people like me are responsible to other people. Even veterinary always had... has... One eye on the guilds. But you? You are answerable to the truth. Amazing. What's its address? Does it read the paper? She, sir, said Sergeant Angua. There's a goddess of truth, I believe. Can't have many followers, then, said Vimes. Except our friend here. He stared at William again over the top of his fingers, and once again the wheels turned. Supposing, just supposing... You came into possession of a little drawing of a dog, he said. Could you print it in your paper? We are talking about waffles, are we? said William. Could you? I'm sure I could. We would be interested in knowing why he barked just before the event, said Vimes. And if you could find him, Corporal Nobbs could speak to him in dog language, yes? said William. Once again Vimes did his impression of a statue. We could get a drawing of the dog to you in an hour, he said. Thank you. Who is running the city at the moment, Commander? I'm just a copper, said Vimes. They don't tell me these things. But I imagine a new patrician will be elected. It's all laid down in the city statutes. Who can tell me more about them, said William, mentally adding, just a copper, my bum. Mr Slant is your man there, said Vimes, and this time he smiled. Very helpful, I believe. Good afternoon, Mr. DeWord. Sergeant, show Mr. DeWord out, will you? I want to see Lord Vetinari, said William. You what? It's a reasonable request, sir. No. Firstly, he is still unconscious. Secondly, he is my prisoner. Aren't you even letting a lawyer see him? 
I think his lordship is in enough trouble already, lad. What about Drumnot? He isn't a prisoner, is he? Vimes glanced up at Sergeant Angwer, who shrugged. All right, there's no law against that, and we can't have people saying he's dead, he said. He unhooked a speaking tube from a brass and leather construction on his desk and hesitated. Have they got that problem sorted out, Sergeant? he said, ignoring William. Yes, sir. The pneumatic message system and the speaking tubes are definitely separated now. Are you sure? You do know Constable Keenside had all his teeth knocked out yesterday? They say it can't happen again, sir. Well, obviously it can't. He hasn't got any more teeth. Oh, well. Vimes picked up the tube, held it away from him for a moment, and then spoke into it. Put me through to the cells, will you? Weep, 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 weep. Say again. This is Vimes. Squid, squid. Vimes put the tube back on its cradle and stared at Sergeant Angua. They're working on it, sir, she said. They say rats have been nibbling at the tubes. Rats? I'm afraid so, sir. Vimes groaned and turned to William. Sergeant Angua will take you to the cells, he said. And then William was on the other side of the door. Come on, said the sergeant. How did I do, said William. I've seen worse. Sorry to mention Corporal Nobbs, but... Oh, don't worry about that, said Sergeant Angua. Your powers of observation will be the talk of the station. Look, he's being kind to you because he hasn't worked out what you are yet, OK? Just be careful, that's all. And you have worked out what I am, have you? said William. Let's just say I don't rely on first impressions. Mind the step. She led the way down into the cells. William noted, without being so crass as to write it down, that there were two watchmen on duty at the bottom. Are they usually guards down here? I mean, the cells have locks, don't they? I hear you've got a vampire working for you, said Sergeant Angua. Otto? Oh, yes. Well, we're not prejudiced about that sort of thing. The sergeant did not answer. Instead, she opened a door off the main cell corridor and called out, Visitor for the patients, Igor. Right with you, sergeant. The room within was brightly lit by an uncanny flickering blue light. Jars lined shelves on one wall. Some had strange things moving in them. Very strange things. Other things just floated. Blue sparks sizzled on some complex machine, all copper balls and glass rods in the corner. But what mainly drew William's attention was the great big eye. Before he could actually scream, a hand reached up, and what he'd thought was a huge eyeball was revealed as the largest magnifying glass he'd ever seen, swivelling up on a metal bracket attached to the forehead of its owner. But the face it revealed was barely an improvement when it came to mouth-desiccating horror. The eyes but on different levels. One ear was larger than the other. The face was a network of scars, but that was nothing compared to the deformed hairstyle. Igor's greasy black hair had been brushed forward into an overhanging quiff in the manner of some of the city's noisier young musicians, but to a length that could take out the eye of any innocent pedestrian. By the looks of the organic nature of Igor's work area, he would then be able to help put it back. There was a fish tank bubbling on one bench, Inside it, some potatoes were idly swimming backwards and forwards. "'Young Igor here is part of our forensic department,' said Sergeant Angua. "'Igor, this is Mr. DeWord. He wants to see the patients.' William saw the quick glance Igor gave the sergeant, who added, "'Mr. Vimes says it's okay.' "'Right this way, then,' said Igor, lurching past William into the corridor. "'Always nice to get visitors down here, Mr. DeWord. You will find we keep a very relaxed cell down here.' I'll just go and get the keys. 
Why does he only lisp the occasional S? said William, as Igor limped towards the cupboard. He's trying to be modern. You'd never met an Igor before? Not one like that, no. He's got two thumbs on his right hand. He's from Uberwald, said the sergeant. Igors are very much into self-improvement. Fine surgeons, though. Just don't shake hands with one in a thunderstorm. Here we are, then, said Igor, lurching back. Who first? Lord Vetinari, said William. He's still asleep, said Igor. What, after all this time? Not surprising. It was a nasty blow he had. Sergeant Angua coughed loudly. I thought he fell off a horse, said William. Well, yes, and caught himself a blow when he hit the floor, I've no doubt, said Igor, glancing at Angua. He turned the key. Lord Vetinari lay on a narrow bed. His face looked pale, but he seemed to be sleeping peacefully. He's not woken up at all, said William. No, I look in on him every fifteen minutes or so. It can be like that. Sometimes the body just says, sleep. I heard he hardly ever sleeps, said William. Maybe he's taking the opportunity, said Igor, gently closing the door. He unlocked the next cell. Drumnot was sitting up in bed, his head bandaged. He was drinking some soup. He looked startled when he saw them, and nearly spilled it. And how are we? said Igor, as cheerfully as a face full of stitches can allow. Er, uh, I'm feeling much better. The young man looked from one face to another, uncertain. Mr. De Word here would like to talk to you, said Sergeant Angua. I'll go and help Igor sort out his eyeballs, uh, or something. William was left in an awkward silence. Drumnot was one of those people with no discernible character. You're Lord De Word's son, aren't you? said Drumnot. You write that news sheet. Yes, said William. It seemed he'd always be his father's son. Um, they say Lord Vetinari stabbed you. So they say, said the clerk. You were there, though. I knocked on the door to take him his copy of the paper, as he'd requested. His lordship opened it. I walked into the room. And the next thing I know, I was waking up here with Mr. Eagle looking at me. That must have come as a shock, said William, with a momentary flash of pride that the times had figured in this in some small way. They say I'd have lost the use of my arm if Igor hadn't been so good with a needle, said Drumnot earnestly. But your head's bandaged too, said William. I think I must have fallen over when, when whatever it was happened, said Drumnot. My gods, thought William, he's embarrassed. I have every confidence that there has been a mistake, Drumnot went on. Has his lordship been preoccupied lately? His lordship is always preoccupied, it's his job said the clerk. Do you know that three people heard him say that he'd killed you? I cannot explain that. They must have been mistaken. The words were clipped sharp. Any moment now, William told himself. Why do you think... He began and was proved right. I think I don't have to talk to you, said Drumnot. Do I? No, but... Sergeant! Drumnot shouted. There were swift footsteps and the cell door opened. Yes, said Sergeant Angua. I have finished talking to this gentleman said Drumnot, and I'm tired. William sighed and put his notebook away. Thank you, he said. You've been very helpful. As he walked along the corridor, he said, he doesn't want to believe his lordship might have attacked him. Really, said the sergeant. Looks like quite a bang he had on his head, William went on. Does it? Look, even I can see this smells funny. Can you? I see, said William. You went to the Mr. Vimes School of Communication, yes? 
Did I? said Sergeant Angler. Loyalty is a wonderful thing, is it? The way out is this way. After she had carefully ushered William into the street, Sergeant Angler went back upstairs into Vime's office and quietly shut the door behind her. So, he only spotted the gargoyles, said Vimes, who was watching William walk down the street. Apparently. But I wouldn't underestimate him, sir. He notices things. He was dead right about the peppermint bomb. And how many officers would have noticed how deeply that arrow went into the floor? That's unfortunately true. And he spotted Igor's second thumb. And hardly anyone else has noticed the swimming potatoes. Igor hasn't got rid of them yet. No, sir. He believes that instant fish and chips are only a generation away. Vimes sighed. All right, Sergeant. Forget the potatoes. What are the odds? Sir? I know what goes on in a duty room. They wouldn't be watchmen if someone wasn't running a book. On Mr. De Word? Yes. Well, six will get you ten that'll be dead by next Monday, sir. You might just spread the word that I don't like that sort of thing, will you? Yes, sir. Find out who's running the book, and when you find out it's Nobby, take it off him. Right, sir. And Mr. De Word? Vimes stared at the ceiling. How many officers are watching him? He said. Two. Nobby's usually good at judging odds. Think that'll be enough? No. Me neither. But we're stretched. He's going to have to learn the hard way. And the trouble with the hard way is you only get one lesson. Mr Tulip emerged from the alleyway where he had just negotiated the purchase of a very small packet of what would shortly prove to be rat poison cut with powdered washing crystals. He found Mr Pin reading a large sheet of paper. What's that? he said. Trouble, I expect, said Mr Pin, folding it up and putting it in his pocket. Yes, indeed. This city is getting on my ing nerves, said Mr Tulip as they continued down the street. I got a ing headache and my leg hurts. So? It bit me too. You made a mistake with that dog. Are you saying I shouldn't have shot at it? No, I'm saying you shouldn't have missed. It got away. Don't you, dog? Mr Tulip grumbled. What's such a problem about a dog? It's not like it's a reliable in-witness. They never told us about no in-dog. His ankle was beginning to get that hot, dark sensation that suggested that someone hadn't been brushing their teeth lately. You just try carrying a guy with a in-dog snapping at your legs. And how come the ing zombie never told us the guy was so ing fast? If he hadn't been staring at the geek, he'd have ing got me. Mr Pin shrugged, but he'd made a note of that. Mr Slant had failed to tell the new firm quite a lot of things, and one of them was that Vetinari moved like a snake. This was going to cost the lawyer a lot of money. Mr Pin had nearly got cut. But he was proud of stabbing the clerk and shoving Charlie out on the landing to babble to the stupid servants. That hadn't been in the script. That was the kind of service you got from the new firm. He snapped his fingers as he walked. Yeah, they could react. They could extemporise. They could get creative. Excuse me, gentlemen. A figure had stepped out of the alleyway ahead of them, a knife in each hand. Thieves' Guild, it said. Excuse me, this is an official robbery. To the surprise of the thief, Mr Pin and Mr Tulip seemed neither shocked nor frightened, despite the size of the knives. Instead, they looked like a pair of lepidopterists who'd stumbled across an entirely new kind of butterfly and found it trying to wave a tiny little net. "'Official robbery,' said Mr Tulip, slowly. "'Ah, your visitors to our fair city,' said the thief. "'Then this is your lucky day, sir, and, sir, 
A theft of $25 entitles you to immunity from further street theft for a period of a full six months. Plus, for this week only, the choice of this handsome box of crystal wine glasses or a useful set of barbecue tools which will be the envy of your friends. You mean your legal? said Mr Pin. What ing friends? said Mr Tulip. Yes, sir. Lord Vetinari feels that since there'll always be some crime in the city, it might as well be organised. Mr Tulip and Mr Pin looked at one another. Well, legal is my middle name, said Mr Pin, shrugging. Over to you, Mr Tulip. And since you are newcomers, I can offer you an introductory hundred-dollar theft, which will give you subsequent immunity for a full twenty-six months, plus this booklet of restaurant, livery hire, clothing and entertainment vouchers worth a full twenty-five dollars at today's prices. Your neighbours would admire... Mr Tulip's arm moved in a blur. One banana-bunch hand caught the thief around the neck and slammed his head against the wall. Unfortunately, Mr Tulip's middle name is Bastard, said Mr Pin, lighting a cigarette. The meaty sounds of his colleague's permanent anger continued behind him as he picked up the wine glasses and examined them critically. Cheap paste, not crystal at all, he said. Who can you trust these days? It makes you despair. The body of the thief slumped to the ground. I think I'll go for the ing barbecue set, said Mr Tulip, stepping over it. I see here where it contains a number of oh-so-useful skewers and spatulas that will add a new dimension of enjoyment to those owl fresco patio meals. He ripped open the box and dragged out a blue and white apron which he examined critically. Kill the cook, he said, slipping it over his head. Hey, this is classy stuff. I'll have to get some ing friends so they can envy me when I'm having a meal with ing owl fresco. How about them ing vouchers? There's never any good stuff in these things, said Mr Pin. It's just a way of shifting stuff no one can sell. See here, 25% off happy hour prices at Furby's Castle of Cabbage. He tossed the booklet aside. Not bad, though, said Mr Tulip. And he only had $20 on him, so it's a ing bargain. I'll be glad when we leave this place, said Mr Pin. It's too strange. Let's just frighten a dead man and get out of here. Ingrat! The cry of the wild newspaper seller rang out across the twilit square as William set off back to Gleam Street. They were still selling well, he could see. It was only by accident, as a citizen hurried past him, that he saw the headline, Woman gives birth to Cobra. Surely Sacharissa hadn't got out another edition by herself, had she? He ran back to the seller. It wasn't the Times. The title, in big bold type that was rather better than the stuff the dwarfs made, was... Ank Morpork Inquirer, the news you only hear about, 2P. What's all this? he said to the seller, who was socially above Ron's group by several layers of grime. Always what? All this, this? The stupid interview with Drumnot had left William very annoyed. Ask me, Gov. I'll get a penny for everyone I sell, that's all I know. Rain of soup in Genua? Hen lays egg three times in hurricane? Where'd all this come from? Look, Gav, if I was a reading man, I wouldn't be flogging papers, right? Someone else has started the paper, said William. He cast his eyes down to the small print at the bottom of the single page, and in this paper, even the small print wasn't very small, in Gleam Street, he recalled the workman bustling around outside the old warehouse. How could... But the Engravers Guild could, couldn't they? They already had presses. 
and they certainly had the money. Tuppence was ridiculous, though, even for this single sheet of... rubbish. If the seller got a penny, then how in the world could the printer make any money? Then he realised. That wouldn't be the point, would it? The point was to put the Times out of business. A big red and white sign for the inquirer was already in place across the street from the bucket. More carts were queuing outside. One of Good Mountain's dwarfs was peering around them from behind the wall. There's three presses in there already, he said. You saw what they've done. They got it out in half an hour. Yes, but it's only one sheet and it's made up stuff. Is it? Even the one about the snake? I'd bet a thousand dollars. William remembered that the smaller print had said this had happened in Lanka. He revised his estimate. I'd bet at least a hundred dollars. That's not the worst of it, said the dwarf. You'd better come in. Inside the press was creaking away, but most of the dwarfs were idle. Shall I give you the headlines? said Saccharissa as he entered. You'd better, said William, sitting down at his crowded desk. Engravers offer dwarfs one thousand dollars for press. Oh, no. Vampire iconographer and hard-working writer tempted with five hundred dollars salaries, Saccharissa went on. Oh, really? Dwarfs buggered for paper. What? That's a direct quote from Mr. Goodmountain, said Saccharissa. I don't pretend to know exactly what it means, but I understand they've got enough for only one more edition. And if we want any more, it's five times the old price, said Goodmountain, coming up. The engravers are buying it up. Supply and demand, King says. King? William's brow wrinkled. You mean Mr. King? Yeah, King of the Golden River, said the dwarf. And yeah, we could just about pay that, but if them across the road are going to sell their sheet for 2p, we'll be working for practically nothing. Otto told the man from the guild that he'd break his pledge if he saw him here again, said Saccharissa. He was very angry because the man was angling to find out how he was taking printable iconographs. What about you? I'm staying. I don't trust them, especially when they're so sneaky. They seem very low-class people, said Saccharissa. But what are we going to do? William bit his thumbnail and stared at his desk. When he moved his feet, a boot fetched up against the money chest with a reassuring thud. We could cut down a bit, I dare say, said Goodmountain. Yes, but then people won't buy the paper, said Saccharissa, and they ought to buy our paper because it's got real news in it. The news in the Enquirer looks more interesting, I have to admit, said Goodmountain. That's because it doesn't actually have to have any facts in it, she snapped. Now, I don't mind going back to a dollar a day, and Otto says he'll work for half a dollar if he can go on living in the cellar. William was still staring at nothing. Apart from the truth, he said in a distant voice, what have we got that the Guild hasn't got? Can we print faster? One press against three, no, said Goodmountain. But I bet we can set type faster. And that means we can probably beat them in getting the first paper onto the street. OK, that might help. Zacharissa, do you know anyone who wants a job? No. Haven't you been looking at the letters? Not as such. Lots of people want a job. This is Ank, more pork. All right. Find the three letters with the fewest spelling mistakes and send Rocky round to hire the writers. One of them was Mr. Bendy, Zacharissa warned. He wants more work. Not many interesting people are dying. Do you know he attends meetings for fun and very carefully writes down everything that's said? Does he do it accurately? I'm sure he does. He's exactly that sort of person. But I don't think we've got the space. Tomorrow morning we'll go to four pages. Don't look like that. I've got more stuff about veterinary, and we've got, ooh, twelve hours to get some paper. I told you, 
"'King won't sell us any more paper at a decent price,' said Good Mountain. "'There's a story right there, then,' said William. "'I mean—' "'Yes, I know. "'I've got some stuff to write, and then you and I will go to see him. "'Oh, and send someone to the semaphore tower, will you? "'I want to send a clax to the King of Lanka. "'I think I met him once. "'Clax costs money, lots of money. "'Do it anyway. "'We'll find the money somehow.' "'William leaned over towards the cellar ladder. "'Otto!' "'The vampire emerged to waist height.' He was holding a half-dismantled iconograph in his hand. "'What can I do for you? "'Can you think of anything extra we can do to sell more papers?' "'What do you want now? "'Pictures that jump out of the page? "'Pictures that talk? "'Pictures where the eyes follow you around the room?' "'There's no need to take offence, said William. "'It wasn't as if I asked for colour or anything.' Colour? said the vampire. "'Is that all? Colour is easy-peasy. "'How soon do you want it?' "'Can't be done,' said Good Mountain firmly. "'Or so you say.' "'Is there somewhere here that makes coloured glass?' "'Here I know the dwarf who runs the stained-glass works in Feeder Road,' said Good Mountain. "'They do hundreds of shades, but I wish to see samples right now, and of inks too. "'You can get coloured inks also?' "'That's easy,' said the dwarf. "'But you'd need hundreds of different ones, wouldn't you?' "'No, this is not so. "'I will make you a list of what I require.' I cannot promise a burly and strong-in-the-arm job first cat out of the bag, of course. I mean, you should not ask me for the subtle play of light on autumn leaves or anything like that, but something the strong shades should be fine. This will be okay? It'll be amazing. Thank you. William stood up. And now, he said, let's go and see the King of the Golden River. I've always been puzzled why people call him that said Sacharissa. I mean, there's no river of gold around here, is there? Gentlemen! Mr. Slant was waiting in the hall of the empty house. He stood up when the new firm entered and clutched his briefcase. He looked as if he was in an unusually bad temper. Where have you been? Getting a bite, Mr. Slant. You didn't turn up this morning and Mr. Tulip gets hungry. I told you to maintain a very low profile. Mr. Tulip isn't good at low profiles. Anyway, it all went off well, you must have heard. Oh, and we nearly got killed because you didn't tell us a whole lot of stuff. And that's going to cost you, but hey, who cares about us? What's the problem? Mr. Slant glared at them. My time is valuable, Mr. Pin, so I will not spin this out. What did you do with a dog? No one said anything to us about that dog, said Mr. Tulip and Mr. Pin knew he'd got the tone wrong. "'Ah, so you encountered the dog,' said Mr. Slant. "'Where is it?' "'Gone. Ran off. Bit our ing legs and ran off.' Mr. Slant sighed. It was like the wind from an ancient tomb. "'I did tell you that the watch has a werewolf on the staff,' he said. "'Well, so what?' said Mr. Pin. "'A werewolf!' would have no difficulty in talking to a dog. What? You're telling us people will listen to a dog? said Mr. Pin. Unfortunately, yes, said Mr. Slant. A dog has got personality. Personality counts for a lot. And the legal precedents are clear. In the history of this city, gentlemen, we have put on trial at various times seven pigs a tribe of rats, four horses, one flea, and a swarm of bees. Last year a parrot 
was allowed as a prosecution witness in a serious murder case, and I had to arrange a witness protection scheme for it. I believe it is now pretending to be a very large budgerigar a long way away. Mr. Slant shook his head. Animals, alas, have their place in a court of law. There are all kinds of objections that could be made, but the point is, Mr. Pin, that Commander Vimes will build a case on it. He will start questioning people. He already knows things are not right, but he has to work within the bounds of proof and evidence, and he has neither. If he finds the dog, I think things will unravel. Slip him a few thousand dollars, said Mr. Pin. That always works with watchmen. I believe that the last person who tried to bribe Vimes still doesn't have full use of one of his fingers, said Mr. Slant. We did everything you ing told us, shouted Mr. Tulip, pointing a sausage-thick finger. Mr. Slant looked him up and down as if seeing him for the first time. Kill the cook, he said. How amusing. However, I understood that we were employing professionals. Mr. Pin had seen this one coming, and once again caught Mr. Tulip's fist in mid-air, being momentarily lifted off his feet. The envelopes, Mr. Tulip, he sang. This man knows things. Hard to know any ing thing when you're dead, snarled Mr. Tulip. Actually, the mind becomes crystal clear, said Mr. Slant. He stood up, and Mr. Pin noticed how a zombie rises, using pairs of muscles in turn, not so much standing as unfolding upwards. Your other assistant is still safe, Slant said. Back down in the cellar, drunk as a skunk, said Mr. Pin. I don't see why we don't just scrag him right now. He nearly turned and ran when he saw Vetinari. If the man hadn't been so surprised, we'd have been in big trouble. Who'd notice one more corpse in a city like this? The watch, Mr. Pin. How many times must I tell you this? They are uncannily good at noticing things. Mr. Tulip here won't leave him much to notice, Mr. Pin stopped. The watch frighten you that much, do they? This is Ank Morpork, snapped the lawyer. We are a very cosmopolitan city. Being dead in Ank Morpork is sometimes only an inconvenience. Do you understand? We have wizards, we have mediums of all sizes, and bodies do have a habit of turning up. We want nothing that is going to give the watch a clue. Do you understand? They'd listen to a ing dead man, said Mr. Tulip. I don't see why not. You are, said the zombie. He relaxed a little. Anyway, it is always possible that there may be further use for your colleague. Some further little outing to convince the unconvinced. He is too valuable an asset to retire just yet. Yeah, OK. We'll keep him in a bottle. But we want extra for the dog, said Mr. Pin. It's only a dog, Mr. Pin, said Slant, raising his eyebrows. Even Mr. Tulip could outthink a dog, I expect. Got to find the dog first, said Mr. Pin, stepping smartly in front of his colleague. Lots of dogs in this town. The zombie sighed again. I can add another five thousand dollars in jewels to your fee, he said. He held up a hand. And please, don't insult both of us by saying ten automatically. 
the task is not hard. Lost dogs in this town either end up running with one of the feral packs or begin a new life as a pair of gloves. I want to know who's giving me these orders, said Mr. Pin. He could feel the weight of the disorganiser inside his jacket. Mr. Slant looked surprised. Me, Mr. Pin. Your clients, I meant. Oh, really? This is going to get political, Mr. Pin persisted. You can't fight politics. I'm going to need to know how far away we've got to run when people find out what happened and who's going to protect us if we're caught. In this city, gentlemen, said Mr. Slant, the facts are never what they seem. Take care of the dog and others will look after you. There are plans afoot. Who can say what really happened? People are easily confused, and here I speak as one who has spent centuries in courtrooms. Apparently, they say, a lie can run round the world before the truth has got its boots on. What an obnoxious little phrase, don't you think? So, do not panic, and all will be well. And do not be stupid, either. My clients have long memories and deep pockets. Other killers can be hired. Do you understand me? He snapped the catches on his case. Good day to you. The door swung to behind him. There was a rattling behind Mr. Pin as Mr. Tulip pulled out his set of stylish executive barbecue tools. What are you doing? That ing zombie is going to end up on the end of a couple of ing andy and versatile kebab skewers, said Mr. Tulip. And then I'm going to put an edge on this ing spatula and then... Then I'm going to get medieval on his arse. There were more pressing problems, but this one intrigued Mr. Pin. How exactly? he said. I thought maybe a maypole, said Mr. Tulip reflectively, and then a display of country dancing, land tillage under the three-field system, several plagues, and, if my ing-an ain't too tired, the invention of the ing-horse collar. Sounds good, said Mr. Pin. Now... Let's find that damn dog. How are we going to do that? Intelligently, said Mr. Pin. I ate that ingway. He was called King of the Golden River. This was a recognition of his wealth and achievements and the source of his success, which was not quite the classical river of gold. It was a considerable advance on his former nickname, which was Piss Harry. Harry King had made his fortune by the careful application of the old adage, where there's muck there's brass. There was money to be made out of things that people threw away, especially the very human things that people threw away. The real foundations of his fortune came when he started leaving empty buckets at various hostelries around the city centre, especially those that were more than a gutter's length in the river. He charged a very modest fee to take them away when they were full. It became part of the life of every pub landlord, They'd hear a clank in the middle of the night and turn over in their sleep, content in the knowledge that one of Pissari's men was, in a small way, making the world a better-smelling place. They didn't wonder what happened to the full buckets, but Harry King had learned something that can be the key to great riches. There is very little, however disgusting, that isn't used somewhere in some industry. 
there are people out there who want large quantities of ammonia and saltpetre. If you can't sell it to the alchemists, then the farmers probably want it. If even the farmers don't want it, then there is nothing, nothing, however gross, that you can't sell to the tanners. Harry felt like the only man in a mining camp who knows what gold looks like. He started taking on whole streets at a time and branched out. In the well-to-do areas, the householders paid him, paid him to take away night soil, the by now established buckets, the horse manure, the dustbins, and even the dog muck. Dog muck? Did they have any idea just how much the tanners paid for the finest white dog muck? It was like being paid to take away squishy diamonds. Harry couldn't help it. The world fell over itself to give him money. Someone somewhere would pay him for a dead horse or two tons of prawns so far beyond their best before date it couldn't be seen with a telescope. And the most wonderful part of it all was that someone had already paid him to take them away. If anything absolutely failed to find a buyer, not even from the catmeat men, not even from the tanners, not even from Mr Dibbler himself, there were his mighty compost heaps downstream of the city, where the volcanic heat of decomposition made fertile soil. Ten peer bag, bring your own bag, out of everything that was left, including, according to rumour, various shadowy businessmen who had come second in a takeover battle. Brings up your daily as a treat. He'd kept the wood pulp and rags business closer to home, though, along with the huge vats that contained the golden foundations of his fortune, because it was the only part of his business that his wife Effie would talk about. Rumour had it that she had also been behind the removal of the much-admired sign over the entrance to his yard which said, H. King, taking the piss since 1961. Now it read, H. King, recycling nature's bounty. A small door within the large gates was opened by a troll. Harry was very forward-looking when it came to employing the non-human races, and had been among the first employers in the city to give a job to a troll. As far as organic substances were concerned, they had no sense of smell. Yes? I'd like to speak to Mr King, please. What a bet. I want to buy a considerable amount of paper from him. Tell him it's Mr De Word. Right. The door slammed shut. They waited. After a few minutes, the door opened again. The King will see you now, the troll announced. And so William and Good Mountain were led into the yard of a man who, rumour said, was stockpiling used paper hankies against the day someone found a way of extracting silver from bogies. On either side of the door, huge black Rottweilers flung themselves against the bars of their day cages. Everyone knew Harry let them have the run of the yard at night. He made sure that everyone knew, and any nocturnal miscreant would have to be really good with dogs unless they wanted to end up as a few pounds of Tanner's Grade 1 white. The King of the Golden River had his office in a two-storey shed overlooking the yard from where he could survey the steaming mounds and cisterns of his empire. Even half-hidden by his big desk, Harry King was an enormous man, pink and shiny-faced, with a few strands of hair teased across his head. It was hard to imagine him not in shirt-sleeves and braces, even when he wasn't, or not smoking a huge cigar, which he'd never been seen without. Perhaps it was some kind of defence against the odours which were, in a way, his stock in trade. "'Evening, lads,' he said amiably. "'What can I do for you, as if I didn't know?' "'Do you remember me, Mr King?' said William. Harry nodded. 
You lord the word, son, right? You put a piece in that letter of yourn last year when our Daphne got wed, right? My Effie were that impressed all those knobs reading about our Daphne. It's a rather bigger letter now, Mr. King. Yes, I did hear about that, said the fat man. Some of them's already turning up in our collections. Useful stuff. I'm getting the lads to store it separate. His cigar shifted from one side of his mouth to the other. Harry could not read or write, a fact which had never stopped him besting those who could. He employed hundreds of workers to sort through the garbage. It was cheap enough to employ a few more who could sort through words. "'Mr. King,' William began. "'I ain't laugh, lads,' said Harry. "'I know why you're here. But business is business. You know how it is.' "'We won't have a business without paper,' Good Mountain burst out. The cigar shifted again. "'And you'd be—' "'This is Mr. Good Mountain,' said William, my printer.' "'Dwarf, eh?' said Harry, looking Good Mountain up and down. "'Nothing against dwarfs, me, but you ain't good sorters. Gnolls don't cost much, but the grubby little buggers eat half the rubbish. Trolls are okay. They stop with me, cos I pays em well. Golems is best. They'll sort stuff all day and all night. Worth their weight in gold, which is bloody near what they want paying these days.' The cigar began another journey back across his mouth. "'Sorry, lads, a deal's a deal. Wish I could help you. Sold right out of paper. Can't.' "'You're knocking us back just like that,' said Good Mountain. Harry gave him a narrow-eyed look through the haze. "'You talking to me about knocking back? Don't know what a tosheroon is, do you?' he said. The dwarf shrugged. "'Yes, I do,' said William. "'There's several meanings, but I think you're referring to a big caked ball of mud and coins.' such as you might find in some crevice in an old drain where the water forms an eddy. They can be quite valuable. What? You've got hands on you like a girl, said Harry, so surprised that the cigar momentarily drooped. How come you know that? I like words, Mr. King. I started out as a muckraker when I was three, said Harry, pushing his chair back. Found me first tosheroon on day one. Of course, one of the big lads nicked it off me right there, and you tell me about being knocked back. But I had a nose for the job even then. Then I... They sat and listened, William more patiently than Good Mountain. It was fascinating, anyway, if you had the right kind of mind. Although he knew a lot of the story, Harry King told it at every opportunity. Young Harry King had been a mudlark with vision, combing the banks of the river and even the surface of the turbid ank itself for lost coins, bits of metal useful lumps of coal, anything that had some value somewhere. By the time he was eight, he was employing other kids. Whole stretches of the river belonged to him. Other gangs kept away or were taken over. Harry wasn't a bad fighter, and he could afford to employ those who were better. And so it had gone on. The ascent of the king through horse manure sold by the bucket, guaranteed well stamped down, to rags and bones and scrap metal and household dust and the famous buckets, where the future really was golden. It was a kind of history of civilization, but seen from the bottom looking up. "'You're not a member of a guild, Mr. King,' said William, during a pause for breath. The cigar travelled from one side to the other and back quite fast, a sure sign that William had hit a nerve. "'Damn guilds,' said its owner. "'They said I should join the beggars. Me! I never begged for nothing, not in my whole life. The nerve, but I've seen them all off. I won't deal with no guild.' I pay my lads well and they stand by me. It's the guilds that are trying to break us, Mr. King. You know that. 
I know you get to hear about everything. If you can't sell us paper, we've lost. What'd I be if I broke a deal? said Harry King. This is my tosheroon, Mr. King, said William, and the kids who want to take it off me are big. Harry was silent for a while, and then lumbered to his feet and crossed to the big window. Come and look here, lads, he said. At one end of the yard was a big treadmill, operated by a couple of golems. It powered a creaking endless belt which crossed most of the yard. At the other end, several trolls with broad shovels fed the belt from a heap of trash that was itself constantly refilled by the occasional cart. Lining the belt itself were golems and trolls and even the occasional human. In the flickering torchlight, they watched the moving debris carefully. Occasionally, a hand would dart out and pitch something into a bin behind the worker. Fish heads, moans, rags, paper. I got twenty-seven different bins so far, including one for gold and silver, cause you'd be amazed what gets thrown away by mistake. Tinkle, tinkle, little spoon, wedding ring will follow soon. That's what I used to sing to my little girls. Stuff like your paper of news goes in bin six, low-grade paper waste. I sells most of that to Bob Oatley up in five and seven yard. What does he do with it? said William, noting the low-grade. Pulps it for lavatory paper, said Harry. The wife swears by it. Personally, I cut out the middleman. He sighed apparently oblivious of the sudden sag in William's self-esteem. "'You know, sometimes I stand here of an evening when the line is rumbling and the sunset is shining on the settling tanks, and I don't mind admitting it, a tear comes to my eye.' "'To tell you the truth, it comes to mind too, sir,' said William. "'Now then, lad, when that kid nicked my first tosheroon, I didn't go round complaining, did I? I knew I'd got an eye for it, see?' I carried on, and I found plenty more, and on my eighth birthday I paid a couple of trolls to seek out the man who'd pinched my first one and slapped seven kinds of snot out of him. Did you know that? No, Mr. King. Harry King stared at William through the smoke. William felt that he was being turned over and examined like something found in the trash. My youngest daughter, Hermione, she's getting married at the end of next week, said Harry. Big show. Temple of Offler, choirs and everything. I'm inviting all the top knobs. Effie insisted. They won't come, of course, not for Pissari. The times would have been there, though, said William, with coloured pictures. Except we go out of business tomorrow. Coloured, eh? You get someone to paint them in, do you? No, we've got a special way, said William, hoping against hope that Otto was serious. He wasn't just out on a limb here, he was dangerously out of the tree. "'That'd be something to see,' said Harry. He took out his cigar, stared reflectively at the end, and put it back in his mouth. Through the smoke he watched William carefully. William felt the distinct unease of a well-educated man who has to confront the fact that the illiterate man watching him could probably outthink him three times over. "'Mr. King, we really need that paper.' he said, to break the thoughtful silence. "'There's something about you, Mr. Deward,' said the King. "'I buy and sell clerks when I need them, and you don't smell like a clerk to me. You got the air about you of a man who'd scrabbled through a ton of shit to find a farthing, and I'm wondering why that is.' "'Look, Mr. King, will you please sell us some paper at the old price?' said William. "'Couldn't do that, I told you. A deal's a deal, the engravers have paid me,' said Harry shortly. William opened his mouth, but Goodmountain laid a hand on his arm. 
the king was clearly working his way to the end of a line of thought. Harry went over to the window again and stared pensively at the yard with its steaming piles. Then, "'Oh, will you look at that?' he said, stepping back from the window in tremendous astonishment. "'See that cart at the other gate down there?' They saw the cart. "'I must have told the lads a hundred times. Don't leave a cart all laden up and ready to go right by an open gate like that. Someone'll nick it, I told them. William wondered who'd steal anything from the King of the Golden River, a man with all those red-hot compost heaps. "'That's the last quarter of the order for the Engravers' Guild,' said Harry to the world in general. "'I'd have to repay him if it got half-inched right out of my yard. "'I'll have to tell the foreman he's getting forgetful these days.' "'We shall be leaving, William,' said Good Mountain, grabbing William's arm again. "'Why, we haven't—' "'However can we repay you, Mr. King?' said the dwarf, dragging William towards the door. "'The bridesmaids will be wearing Oden Nil, whatever that is,' said the King of the Golden River. "'Oh, and if I don't get eighty dollars from you by the end of the month, you lads will be in deep—' The cigar did a double length of the mouth. "'Trouble. Head downwards.' Two minutes later, the cart was creaking out of the yard, under the curiously uninterested eyes of the troll foreman. "'No, it's not stealing,' said Good Mountain emphatically, shaking the reins. "'The king pays the bastards back their money, and we pay him the old price. "'So we're all happy except for the inquirer, and who cares about them?' "'I didn't like the bit about the deep pause trouble,' said William, head downwards. "'I'm shorter on you, so I lose out either way up,' said the dwarf. "'After watching the cart disappear, the king yelled downstairs for one of his clerks "'and told him to fetch a copy of the Times from bin six. "'He sat impassively, except for the oscillating cigar.' while the stained and crumpled paper was read to him. After a while his smile broadened, and he asked the clerk to read a few extracts again. "'Ah,' he said, when the man had finished, "'I reckon that was it. The boy's a born muckraker. Shame for him he was born a long way from honest muck.' "'Shall I do a credit note for the engravers, Mr. King?' "'Aye. You reckon you'll get your money back, Mr. King?' Harry King usually didn't take this sort of thing from clerks. They were there to do the adding up, not discuss policy. On the other hand, Harry had made a fortune seeing the sparkle in the mire, and sometimes you had to recognise expertise when you saw it. "'What colours order nil?' he said. "'Oh, one of those difficult colours, Mr King, a sort of light blue with a hint of green.' "'Could you get ink that colour?' "'I could find out. It'd be expensive.' The cigar made its traverse from one side of Harry King to the other. He was known to dote on his daughters who he felt had suffered rather from having a father who needed to take two baths just to get dirty. "'We shall just have to keep an eye on our little writing, man,' he said. "'Tip off the lads, will you? I wouldn't like to see our Effie disappointed.' The dwarfs were working on the press again, Sacharissa noted. It seldom stayed the same shape for more than a couple of hours. The dwarfs designed it as they went along. It looked to Sacharissa that the only tools a dwarf needed were his axe and some means of making fire. That'd eventually get him a forge, and with that he could make simple tools, and with those he could make complex tools, and with complex tools a dwarf could make more or less anything. A couple of them were rummaging around in the industrial junk that had been piled against the walls. A couple of metal mangles had been melted down for their iron already, and the rocking horses were being used to melt lead. One or two of the dwarfs had left the shed on mysterious errands too, and had returned carrying small sacks and furtive expressions. A dwarf is also very good at making use of things other people have thrown away. 
even if they haven't actually thrown them away yet. She was turning her attention to a report of the Knapp Hill Jolly Pals annual meeting when a crash and some cursing in Uberwaldian, a good cursing language, made her run over to the cellar entrance. Are you all right, Mr. Creek? Do you want me to go and get the dustpan and brush? Oh, sorry, Miss Sakarissa. There has been a minor pothole on the road to progress. Sakarissa made her way down the ladder. Otto was at his makeshift bench. Boxes of demons hung on the wall. Some salamanders dozed in their cages. In a big dark jar, land eels slithered. But a jar next to it was broken. I was clumsy and knocked it over, said Otto, looking embarrassed. And now the stupid eel has gone behind the bench. Does it bite? Oh, no, they are very lazy wretches. What is this you've been working on, Otto? Sakarissa said, turning to look closer at something big on the bench. He tried to dart in front of her. Oh, it is all very experimental. The way of making coloured plates? Yes, but this is just a crude lash-up. Sakarissa caught sight of a movement out of the corner of her eye. The escaped land eel, having got bored behind the bench, was making a very sluggish bid for new horizons where an eel could wriggle proud and horizontal. Please don't, Otto began. Oh, it's all right. I'm not at all squeamish. Sakaris's hand closed on the eel. She came to, with Otto's black handkerchief being flapped desperately in her face. Oh, my goodness, she said, trying to sit up. Otto's face was a picture of such terror that Sakarissa forgot her own splitting headache for a moment. "'What's happened to you?' she said. "'You look terrible!' Otto jerked back, tried to stand up and half-collapsed against the bench, clutching at his chest. "'Cheese!' he moaned. "'Please get me some cheese! Or a big apple! Something to bite, please!' "'There's nothing like that down here. Keep away from me, and do not breathe like that!' Otto wailed. "'Like what?' "'The bosom's going in and out and up and down like that. "'I am a vampire. "'A fainting young lady, please understand the panting, the heaving of the bosoms. "'It calls something terrible from within.' "'With a lurch, he pushed himself upright and gripped the black twister ribbon from his lapel. "'But I will be strong!' he screamed. "'I will not let everyone down!' "'He stood stiffly to attention, although slightly blurred because of the vibration shaking him from head to foot.' and in a trembling voice sang, Oh, will you come to the mission? Will you come, come, come? There's a nice cup of tea and a bun, bun, bun. The ladder was suddenly alive with tumbling dwarfs. Are you all right, miss? said Bodney, running forward with his axe. Has he tried anything? No, no, he's... The drink that's in the living vein is not the drink for me. Sweat was running down Otto's face. He stood with one hand pressed over his heart. "'That's right, Otto!' shouted Sakarissa. "'Fight it! Fight it!' she turned to the dwarfs. "'Have any of you got a piece of raw meat?' "'To life anew and temperance too, and to pure cold water will come!' Veins were throbbing on Otto's pale head. "'Got some fresh rat fillets upstairs?' muttered one of the dwarfs. "'Cost me tuppence.' "'You get them right now, Gaudy,' snapped Bodney. "'This looks bad.' "'Oh, we can drink brandy on gin if it's handy, and we can serve whisky on rum.' But the drink we are for, and we drink no more, is the... Tuppence is tuppence, that's all I'm saying. Look, he's starting to twitch, said Sakarissa. And he can't sing either, said Gowdy. All right, all right, I'm going, I'm going. Sakarissa patted Otto's clammy hand. You can beat it, she said urgently. We're all here for you, aren't we, everyone? Aren't we? Under her baleful gaze, the dwarfs responded with a chorus of half-hearted yeses. 
even though Bodney's expression suggested that he wasn't certain what Otto was here for. Gowdy came back with a small package. Sacharissa snatched it out of his hand and held it out to Otto, who reared back. No, it's just rat, said Sacharissa. Perfectly okay. You're allowed rat, right? Otto froze for a moment and then snatched up the packet. He bit into it. In the sudden silence, Sacharissa wondered if she wasn't hearing a very faint sound, like the straw at the bottom of a milkshake. After a few seconds, Otto opened his eyes and then looked sidelong at the dwarfs. He dropped the packet. Oh, what shame! Where can I put my face? Oh, what must you think of me? Sacharissa clapped with desperate enthusiasm. No, no, we're all very impressed. Aren't we, everyone? Out of Otto's sight, she waved one hand very deliberately at the dwarfs. There was another ragged chorus of agreement. I mean, I have been going through cold bat now for more than three months, muttered Otto. It is such a disgusting thing to break down now and... Oh, raw meat's nothing, said Sacharissa. That's allowed, isn't it? Yes, but for a second there I nearly... Yes, but you didn't, said Sacharissa. That's what's important. You wanted to and didn't. She turned to the dwarfs. You can all go back to what you were doing, she said. Otto is perfectly all right now. Are you sure? Bodney began, and then nodded. He'd rather have argued with a wild vampire than Sacharissa at this moment. Right you are, miss. Otto sat down, wiping his forehead as the dwarfs filed out. Sacharissa patted his hand. Do you want a drink? Oh, of water, Otto, said Sacharissa. No, no, everything is okay, I think. Uh, oh dear, my goodness, I am so sorry. You think you are on top of it, and then suddenly it all comes back to you. What a day. Otto? Yes, miss? What actually happened when I grabbed the eel, Otto? He winced. I think this is maybe not the time. Otto, I saw things. There were flames and people, a noise, just for a moment. It was like watching a whole day go past in a second. What happened? Well, Otto said reluctantly, you know how salamanders absorb light? Yes, of course. Well, the eels absorb dark light. Not darkness exactly, but the light within darkness. Dark light, you see, dark light, well, it has not been properly studied. It is heavier than normal light, you see, so most of it is under the sea or in the really deep caves in Überwald. But there is always a little of it, even in normal darkness. It really is very fascinating. It's a kind of special magic light, right? Could we just get more towards the point a bit? I have heard it said that dark light is the original light from which all other types of light came. Otto! He held up a pale hand. I have to tell you these things. Have you heard the theory that there is no such thing as the present? Because if it is divisible, then it cannot be the present. And if it is not divisible, then it cannot have a beginning which connects to the past and an end that connects to the future. The philosopher Heider Hollen tells us that the universe is just a cold soup of time, all time mixed up together, and what we call the passage of time is merely quantum fluctuations in the fabric of space-time. You have very long winter evenings in Überwald, don't you? You see, dark light is held to be the proof of this, Otto went on, ignoring her. It is light without time. What it illuminates, you see, is not necessarily now. He paused. 
as if waiting for something. "'Are you saying it takes pictures of the past?' said Sakarissa. "'Or the future? Or somewhere else? Of course, in reality there is no difference.' "'And all this you point at people's heads?' Otto looked worried. "'I am finding strange side things. Uh, "'The dwarfs say that dark light has odd effects, "'but they are very superstitious people, "'so I did not take that seriously. "'However,' he scrabbled among the debris on his bench "'and picked up an iconograph. "'End of CD 5